podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Solid 7.5 out of 10. How are you? Yeah, about a 4 out of 10, but that's just how things go for me at the minute. But, but, at least I'm not having to watch Liverpool play football at the minute, so that's a positive. I'm taking that as a positive. When, we come, back this, when we come back into this international break, they're going to be winning games of football. I look forward to it because, um, you know, there's, there's, there's not a lot of evidence at the moment to suggest that that will be the case. But I'm There's lovely rest taking place at the minute for a couple of players. Lovely rest. Yep, rest James Milner be, is be, uh, rehabilitating his energy he'll be, levels for you. He'll be refreshed and he'll be able to give us a good seven minutes in our first game back. But unfortunately, it'll be the first seven minutes of the game and then it'll be crap for 60 before Klopp takes him off. Anyway, we're not here to slander James Milner today. That's another day's podcast. Today, we are going to talk about Christmas. Uh, or in <laughs> footballing terms, we're going to talk about the Winter World Cup, which will take place in Qatar in November and December. And today, we're going to talk about groups A, B, C, and D. So we might as well start with Group A, which contains the host Qatar... Ecuador, somewhat surprise qualifiers out of South America. Senegal, who I think everybody thought would make it. And the Netherlands. So there is some Liverpool interest here, obviously, with the Netherlands. Some former Liverpool interest with Senegal. And maybe a bit of future Liverpool interest with Ecuador. And then there is Qatar. I don't know where you want to start with this, but this was your idea, so I'm going to let you lead the way. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess, first of all, we'll, we'll offer a minor explanation in that we decided that the only time we're really going to get to do these World Cup previews is now during the international break, because the rest of the time, obviously, unless more fixtures are cancelled for more reasons, uh, is going to be fairly relentless all the way through. So... The international break obviously gives us a bit of an opportunity to look at a couple of nations this week if we are so inclined. I suspect over the weekend I will have to be. Um, so it makes sense to start in Group A, like you say, and we may as well go with the hosts because I think, I want to speak for you, Dave, but I think this one might be done quickly. Yeah, because uh, I genuinely have no idea who any of their players are. Uh, there is not one name that stands out to me as somebody that I would be in any way aware of. They all appear to be home-based, and I do not watch Qatari football. I note there is a right-back called Roro, whose name is Pedro Miguel Calvaro, or 
Yeah. Calvaro oh, Juice Carrera, uh, born in Portugal, played for Benfica, moved to Qatar. When did he move to Qatar? He moved to Qatar in 2011 and became naturalized and has been playing for them for six years now. And in six years, Carl, this man has somehow attained 77 caps. Players <laughs> play international football for a decade and don't get to that. Uh, but that maybe points along with the fact that there are players in the squad with 76, 117, 50, 93, 93, 54, 104, 40, 78, 43, 43, 163, 61, and 72 caps to the fact that the Qatari national team are quite active. Yeah, uh, I think obviously a part of this is the fact that they've had to qualify um, because they're hosts and so do their tours and they do their playing as many games as possible and so on and there's a whole other side to them playing as many games as possible in as many places as possible which we probably won't go into right at this moment on this podcast um, I know of two of them so we can go in depth and when I say in depth I mean compared to your not knowing any of them uh, with these two players exactly and because both of them had spells in Europe earlier on in their career uh, one is Abdelkarim Hassan who I think played as both a left-back and right-back. He was in Belgium very briefly. Uh, he was one of a, a number of them who made sort of headlines who came out of Qatar and Saudi Arabia and a couple of other places who sort of either got, I'm not sure if it was sort of handed or gifted or offered loan spells and trial spells at a few European clubs. There were a couple in Belgium, uh, a couple in Spain. Uh, one or two of them actually did quite well and, and made their way around a little bit. The other one that I know of is Akram Afif, who was also another one of those, and he was at Elben in, in Belgium, and where I knew him from was training with Villarreal. So he did actually play for Villarreal, but he was on loan at uh, Sporting Gijón for a little while, and then I think he went back to Belgium as well. Uh, he sort of plays off the front line, and he looked you know, technical and tricky and all that kind of stuff, but ultimately not really good enough to play in La Liga. So that's what we've got possibly a good left side in terms of relative to the rest of the team. Yeah, yeah, that would that would seem fair. Um they do obviously have a lot of experience in the squad. Um there's a lot of players who are 28 and above. So that would hint at the fact that you know this is a group that's been together a long time, that know each other very well and that perhaps can make up for their technical deficiencies by being a good unit, you know, a well-organized team who can maybe cause some problems because they will be well used to the heat and other other countries may well struggle in that heat. Their coach, Felix Sanchez-Baz, or Felix Sanchez, is a Spaniard who previously coached in the Barcelona Academy for a decade, moved to Qatar in 2016, uh, to sort of help with the growth of football in the country, has played a very important role and has been involved with the national team set up since 2013, becoming manager of the senior team in 2017. He has overseen 81 games, uh, 43 wins, 15 defeat, defeats and 23, sorry, 15 draws and 23 losses. You can't read much into the record because, again, you have to look at who they're playing. But 
again, it's it's a squad that he has molded that's been together with him a long time that will understand what he wants from them. He will understand the strengths and weaknesses and you would assume build his game plan from for them accordingly. So, look, I, I couldn't tell you any more than what I've already said, but my guess is they're going to be fairly hardworking, fairly well organised, and they won't be easily beaten. Yeah, um, I haven't watched them, so I'm not going to lie. I, I've, I'm not going to watch them before the World Cup either, unless they happen to have a, a big friendly before the actual thing kicks off. And judging by the fact that at the moment their last friendly is lined up against Panama, I'm probably not going to tune into that one. So Qatar against Ecuador is the first one I'm going to watch off them. But looking at the types of teams that they've played, uh, the level of nations that they've won and not won against, it's not awful, to be fair. Um, they had a, a few friendlies in August against Ghana and Morocco and Jamaica, and they didn't lose any of them. They beat Ghana. I don't know, again, the type of lineups that those opposing sides were putting out, but they're respectable results. They had lots and lots of summer friendlies as well, uh, teams in pre-season against like Lazio and Fiorentina and Mallorca, that sort of thing, which you can't judge anything by at all. Uh, pre-season, mixed-up teams, youth players probably involved, all that kind of thing. Looking back at friendlies last year and earlier this year, they beat Bulgaria, which is a reasonable result, obviously. Bulgaria are not, not the force that they used to be. But then in the Arab Cup, which is maybe where you can take a little bit more uh, of a, of a compet- uh, competitive level, or for a tournament level at least, um, beating teams like Iran narrowly and being beaten by Algeria, you'd probably be saying you're looking at in terms of a what Africa... African Nations Cup, maybe sort of quarter finalist sort of level of this kind of side. If you're trying to plug in all of those kind of results and get a, a vague sort of indication of where they might be, so I think we could probably expect a decent technical level um, of intentional play. Let's say um, whether that is you know very very focused around the manager's style of what he would have been obviously doing at Barcelona. I don't think we can probably guess at or there's not much point to guessing at for that but I wouldn't be surprised to see quite a structured style of play and maybe where they fall down is that they lack a bit of final third quality yeah I think that's very fair I think that's very fair so we'll park them and look it's it's kind of fun to not know much about a country at the World Cup especially the host country this is very unusual because even when it was Japan and South Korea we still knew about a lot of the Japanese players and some of the South Korean players. When it was in South Africa, we knew about a lot of the players. We'd seen players that weren't still in the team at that point, but had you know been in the team during the development of South African football. We'd seen a lot of them come to Europe and some of them came to the Premier League. So we had some familiarity with South African football as we had with Japanese and with um, South Korean football. There's no real familiarity with Qatari football other than, you know, a few players in recent years at the tail ends of their career have gone to Qatar to finish out. You know, the likes of Xavi, for example, went across and finished his career there. But nobody was watching. People might have watched one or two games just out of morbid curiosity to see how it was, but nobody was watching on a regular basis. Um, so let's move on. Let's look at Ecuador then. These, I think, are one of the surprise um, 
one of the surprise qualifiers for this competition. But there's a lot of very good players in this side. Now, for many years in the Premier League, we didn't have much in the way of um much in the way of Ecuadorian players to talk about. But in recent years, there has been a couple who were very good. I mean, Ener Valencia was at the Premier League level for a couple of years, and he was a decent player. Um, Am I right in thinking Antonio Valencia was also Ecuadorian? Am I right with that? Yes, he was indeed. And he was a good player for a number of years for Manchester United. But this squad, I see at least three players who would make me want to watch Ecuador games. I really like Purvis Estupin and the left wing back at Brighton, who was at Villarreal, had been at a couple of different um, La Liga clubs while owned by Watford. Piero Hincapi, the centre-back slash left-back from Bayer Leverkusen, in my view is one of the best young defenders in Europe. And I'm really excited to see what he's going to become over the next couple of years. And then there's Moises Casado, who I just think is absolutely a special talent, who right now is probably top of my list of players that I would like Liverpool to go and sign in January. There's also one other in Gonzalo Plata, who was at Sporting, is now at Via the Lead, who excites me a bit as a winger. But Casado and Hincapi are the two that stand out, and I do really like Estupin. Yeah, I think there's um, quite a few of these players actually are very, very watchable. Um, in midfield, Carlos Grezzo is another one who I've actually liked watching for quite a long time since he was at Dallas. He plays in Germany now uh, with Augsburg. Very, very hard working, really good box to box. You can use him as a, a defensive midfielder as well. Um, he's, he's really interesting player to watch, not in a you know going to reach the, the very top of the game or anything like that, but just in the way that you know some players can almost be the missing part of the team, which is very nice to watch and has a good style of play, but lacks a bit of bite. Basically, he can add a lot to a team in midfield, and I think he's a potentially a decent foil for someone like Caicedo, who's going to go a little bit more roving, a little bit more ball playing capacity in the final third, that kind of thing. So I think they, they've got a really interesting dynamic to try and put together in midfield. Um, Jokaev Rayasco, I'm looking forward to seeing just because his first name is Jokaev. There's got yeah, to be something gonna, about him. I was just going to say, I'm fully prepared to get on board with this kid. Despite he never having shirt seen anyway. Him. Yeah, exactly. Yes. He just buy the shirt. Um, plays for Newell's, which is by coincidence also the team that I used to watch when I used to follow Argentinian football uh, and write on that so again may just buy his shirt and hope he gets called up in the end uh, one thing to note about Ecuador is a very very tiny small chance that they might not play up the World Cup but we should just note it just in case um, obviously he finished in the uh, qualification places um, but they played Byron Castillo in most of those matches and Chile have put a case in with FIFA basically saying that he was not eligible to play for Ecuador because he was born in Colombia and wasn't registered properly and all the rest of it. So FIFA have thrown that case out, but they're going to take it up to CAS more than likely. Um, so there is a, an outside chance that Ecuador don't play and Chile do instead, but 
it's unlikely at this stage you'd have to think that anything gets overturned in that regard. Yeah, it, it is unlikely, especially at this late point. Um, it, it just screams of, of bitterness from Chile, who, let's be fair, Chile aren't at this World Cup because Chile weren't good enough to be at this World Cup. And their complaints and gripes are mostly based around the fact that this was the last hurrah for that kind of great Chilean team. Um, Colombia obviously finished in sixth, Peru in fifth, and Chile finished seventh in a group of ten. So just go away, Chile. No one cares for your cry arsing at this point. Ecuador deserved to be here. Um, they played Argentina in the first game, lost 1-0. Then they beat Uruguay 4-2, and that was sort of a warning shot to everybody else that we're, we're going to be a real team in this. Um, they beat Bolivia 3-2. They beat Colombia 6-1. Does anyone want to complain about that one? A 6-1 victory over Colombia. Hugely impressive. They lost 2-0 to Brazil. They lost 1-0 to Peru, which was a disappointing one for them. They beat Paraguay 2-0. Then they drew 0-0 with Chile. They lost 1-0 away to Uruguay. They beat Bolivia 3-0 at home. They lost 2-1 away to Venezuela, which was disappointing. Drew 0-0 away with Colombia. Beat Venezuela 1-0 at home. Beat Chile 2-0 away. Estupin and Caicedo with the goals in that one. Drew 1-1 at home with Brazil. Great result for them. Drew 1-1 away to Peru. Lost 3-1 away at Paraguay. And then in the last game, drew 1-1 at home with Argentina. So overall, a very impressive outcome for them. Couple of disappointing results. But they have to be absolutely thrilled. Like a Uruguay team that are far more highly heralded than them only finished two points ahead of them. And they had an eight-goal better goal difference than Uruguay. So they fully earned this. They deserve to be here. They were one of the four best teams in qualification. And I get that there's some griping about Castillo, but what we can confirm without question, is that this kid, regardless of whether he was born in uh, Ecuador or not, he has been playing his football in Ecuador for at least 10 years. That is that is fact. So even if he wasn't registered, he would be eligible to play for them, regardless of where he was born. He might not have the passport. I, I would bet that he does have a passport issued by Ecuador. So just go away, Chile. No one cares. I think the big, the big thing for Ecuador in terms of qualifying for the World Cup is in South America, it's such a heavy skew between teams who are good at home and teams who are not consistent enough at home. Like if you do well on home soil in World Cup qualifiers in, Amer- in South America, more often than not, you're going to get there. And they only lost once, and that was against Peru, which, like you said, that, that was definitely a, a surprise and a disappointment. But all the rest of them, either wins or draws against the likes of Brazil and Argentina, that's where they've got themselves through to the World Cup, making sure that they go to you know someone like 
Caracas La Paz or Buenos Aires or wherever it is and they can get the odd point the odd win that sort of thing but on home soil nobody really takes points off them who they're going to be in direct competition with that gets you there that's that's the really really big thing that they've done so well this time around exactly now they've been at four pre oh sorry three previous world cups their last appearance was in 2014 their best was the round of 16 in 2006 and i actually think they might be the team that comes out of this group second behind the Netherlands. That's my kind of dark horse pick, I suppose, to come out of the group. Um, The other team, I think, who will compete for that second spot in the group is obviously Senegal. And we know a fair bit about the Senegalese national team. You've got your star names like your Koulibaly's, and your Sadio Mane's, you've got Ishmael Assar, you've got uh, Idrissa Ganagay, Cheku Koyate, Papa Matar Sar at Spurs, fairly well known to everybody, um, Musa Niakate of Nottingham Forest, part of the squad as well. It's a fairly well known, uh, Edward Mendy, I forgot, of course, fairly well known, fairly es- established group of players that have mostly been around for quite a while and I think everybody will have fairly high expectations of Senegal going into this the reigning AFCON champions they finished top of their qualifying group ahead of Togo Namibia and Congo five wins and a draw then in the third round of the African qualification they beat Egypt on penalties after two one nil victories, it ended up on penalties, and through they go. Um, I, I, again, we're not surprised Senegal are here. We know what they're about. We know they're a good team. I do just have a little bit of a concern that there might be some burnout with some of these Senegalese players who've played an awful lot of football in the last eighteen months. I'm thinking specifically about. I suppose the big three for them. Edouard Mendy, who's not started the Premier League season well. Kaladu Koulibaly, who's not started the Premier League season well. And Sadio Mane, who's looked a bit sluggish in recent weeks for Bayern Munich following his move. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Senegalese? So I like the squad um, in terms of its individual components. And I think that they have capacity to put together a really strong 11 on any given game I think that uh, for for the head coach Alou Cisse I think again his biggest job here is going to be making um, an environment if you like or a a collective uh, some sort of ecosystem where the players are not just part of a team but have a real cause to fight for because I think that they easily have the talent to get through this group, to be honest. I think most people would pick Senegal ahead of Ecuador. But I think where Senegal's... I'm not going to say big match play, because like you just said, they won the AFCON. But the way that they won the AFCON was not always as impressive as it could have been. It was not always as uh, routine a performance against certain sides who they are better than. And given that the final game in Group A, uh, the final round of games, I should say, in Group A, includes... Ecuador against Senegal, that's a massive one that they're going to have to probably win 
Like either one of those sides wins that game, they probably go through. So if he can put together a, a team, a squad, which is, you know, very, very focused on fighting and really battling for each other and for you know, the pride of the nation and whatever else it is that they rely on, I think there's a good chance that they do beat Ecuador. But if they are looking towards Sadio Mane to produce something, as they did so often in the AFCON, if they're looking towards real individual moments and not particularly um, cohesive as a unit, I would say, I, I think they go out. See, that's my fear as well. That is my fear, is that they'll be too reliant on on Sadio. And um, I, I think it could hurt them. I do. I think it could hurt them. I, I think that Senegal are probably the only side that I would say Qatar, the type of type, team that we expect Qatar to be maybe, or the level mm. is more important, is the team that they would surprise, let's say, and take something off. I wouldn't see them doing that against Ecuador, who are now are a much more forceful unit, a much more um, well-organised side with a lot of like fighters in midfield, a lot of battling players all over the pitch. I wouldn't expect that Ecuador side, they might draw and you know be blunt and attack or whatever, I wouldn't expect them to lose a game like against Qatar, whereas I could feasibly see Senegal slipping up. Yeah, I, you could just see you could just see it all, it's Senegal dominating the game and then things breaking down in the final third because they're always looking to give it to Sadio and Sadio just has one of those games where things bounce off him. Um, I, I, I'm quite keen to see how they go with the centre-forward, to be honest, because obviously we know Mane could just end up being there, but if they play him and Sar a little bit wide, for example, and then idea through the middle, that's a very different mm, way of different attacking. Look. Yeah, so they do have a lot of options to, to change around that attack if it's not working. And obviously Papa Matassar is like really highly rated. I've not really seen too much of him, obviously, because he doesn't really play for Spurs or anything like that. But there are a lot of players in this team or potential team who are match winners. But it's definitely about finding a cohesive unit, a way of the, the build-up play, getting those players into the right areas, playing at decent speed as well. I have mm. to say, at this point, some of the pitches at the AFCON were atrocious, Awful. which does which does make it very, very difficult to play You know the sort of the speed of football, the, the movement that at their best, this Senegal side have shown that they can do. Maybe it will be a lot easier for them to do that and to click into top gear at what are effectively brand new pitches, brand new stadiums and all the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, that is very, very fair. They are a team that wants to play kind of quick football and the pitches at the AFCON look like someone had been out churning them 15 minutes beforehand. Um, Let's move on then to the final team in this group that are the Netherlands. And look, we know uh, we know this squad better than all of the rest because you know it's it's better with you've got Virgil, you've got a number of players that play in the Premier League. Ajax are always a big draw for people to watch. PSV the same. You've got players at Bayern Munich at Barcelona. It's a, it is a strong squad. I would say it lacks a reliable goal scoring number nine, but I know Memphis Depay is a reliable goal scorer for them. I think it's got very good defensive players, a good group of midfield players for Van Hal to call upon. Potentially, though, no Ginny Wijnaldum, who's out with a broken leg at the moment. We have to keep our fingers crossed that he comes back. 
Donny van der Beek and Ryan Gravenberch would both be part of this squad, but they're not getting games for their clubs at the moment, so they've been left out of these Nations League games. But my big concern with this group, Carl, is the goalkeepers. Sillison is the number one. I don't think he's great. I think he's okay, but I don't think he's great. I think he's fallen off quite a bit from where he was a few years back. I think there's a reason he's back playing with NEC in the Netherlands when, you know, this guy moved for, what, $35 a few years back. Uh, Mark Flecken is the primary backup. He's got four caps. The other two in this squad, Remco Pasphere, who's 38 and has no caps, and Andries Nobert of Heronveen. Others who've been called up recently, Tim Krul and Justin Bijlau. I wouldn't have faith in any of these goalkeepers, and I think that could be what lets them down in this tournament. Because I think you could see a world in which they have the best defence in the tournament with the likes of Virgil, Delict, Timber, Nathan Aki, Stefan de Vries, Daly Blind, uh, Malashia, Wrench, Dumfries. It's a really strong defensive group, but I just don't like those goalkeepers. Now, in their qualifying group, they finished top of Group G, uh, two points clear of Turkey, seven wins, two draws, one defeat. That defeat was the first game away to Turkey. But since Van Hal took over, they have been... I would say significantly better. They're unbeaten under Van Hal, nine wins from 13 games, four draws. What do you make of the Dutch? Do you think they can go far in this competition? I do, but I do still have reservations over the fact that he's like quite insistent that they have to play the 3-4-3, 3-5-2 sort of setup. I think it's a little bit restrictive in attack for them at times. Um don't like the fact that a few players like Bruno Martins Indy is you know, back involved in this squad who feels like he sh- should have fallen out of favour about a decade ago, probably about the last time that I bought him on Football Manager. Um, again, the goalkeepers, I agree with you that they, they needed to find someone up there. Basically, they needed people like Uzur and Zouet to go and be as good as they could have been, and they haven't. Uh, I think Renko Pasvir has got a really good chance of actually started this tournament as, as the number one and considering he's uncapped at the moment it tells you quite a lot and he's 38 years of age he's waited a long time he's in good form and he's playing for Ajax all of that stuff probably puts him ahead of everybody else in terms of what his current level of ability is and at a World Cup for someone like Van Gaal who can be a bit pragmatic uh, pragmatic at times I wouldn't be surprised to see him rock up as the number one to be honest uh, I would expect him cruel to still go as well if he is fit for it but maybe not maybe not um, the defence is they've got so many good options that I can understand playing the three is the way that they play the outside centre-backs is not really conducive to you know the, the very best of modern football let's say a lot of the teams you see playing a, a back three you'll have one of the centre-backs pushing really really high up they can almost be a wing-back themselves in build-up play at times you know decent pace decent, they should be really really solid in the air for everybody that they've got but they've really struggled sometimes off like set pieces in recent matches. And when I say recent, obviously I'm talking about the last three months across the last like five games or so. Um, Netherlands-Belgium is one of the Nations League games this this international break, which is definitely one I will watch to see who out of this midfield group um, impresses because you've got to think that maybe at least one of them is going to go who's not definite start all the time like Kenneth Taylor for example we've seen him be really good in the Champions League already this season he's making 
waves, let's say, for, for this Ajax team who's only 20 years of age, he's uncapped. He could force his way in ahead of, let's say, Wijnaldum if he's not back from injury, Gravenberch if he doesn't play. I suspect Gravenberch goes anyway to the World Cup because a player of that talent you want to give that experience to as well. I think that would be quite important. Like, I'd rather take him than, let's say, Donny van der Beek, for example, if only one Davey of them Klassen. could go. Yeah, Klassen maybe as well. Klassen, again, though, back in uh, with Ajax and playing a, a semi-regular role, you probably going to take him if you want like one really experienced player to go with a couple of people like Tim Cook Miners who I think is a really good player to, to come in and be a starter here if they get the midfield right and especially that sort of support and forward for the two strikers if they if they keep the two they've got a chance to do well but I don't think that the setup allows this group of players to play the best football or the most winning football in the difficult matches see I think this squad is just made to play 4-3-3 like, if you play Jurian Timber at right back, De Ligt and Van Dijk in the middle, and Malashi at left back, that's a strong back four. And then in midfield, you've got Coop Miners, you've got Frankie, and then you've got one other spot. Now, that could be Kenneth Taylor, that could be Ginny Wijnaldum if fit, that could be Ryan Gravenberch. That's a good midfield. Up front, you'd play Gakpo off the left, you'd play Memphis to the middle, and then you've got either Bergvine. Maybe Danielle Malin, if you wanted to take a chance that he can find his form. Or Noah Lang, who can be that kind of creative outlet and that ball carrier. Like, for me, that would be quite a a decent squad. Or Danjuma, as you mentioned, he's another one that can can play wide. So you could play him on one side, Gakbo on the other, and then Memphis as your nine. I just think there'd be better balance to that than what we've seen when they've played the 3-4-3. Now, admittedly, I have left out Denzel Dumfries, but I think Jurian Timber gives you more defensive solidity, which I think is important. Um, I, 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 there's a lot of talent available to him. I just don't know that he's going to make use of it because I think in his mind, he has his way of playing and his way is better than everybody else's because, unfortunately, he still thinks it's 2012 the last time he was an elite manager. And um, I think him and the goalkeeping situation is what will hold this Dutch team back. Because there's this, there's definitely the talent there to make a deep, deep run to maybe the semi-final stage. I just don't know that Van Hal will put players in the best positions to get the best outcomes. Let's put it the other way around. Is there any danger that if the system is not quite the most beneficial it could be, and this isn't just us saying it to be to be clear, some of the players have also said it, you know, they've they've spoken and they some of them would prefer a four three three, they've asked the manager and the coaches, but the manager says they're sticking with it and so they're fully behind it. There's no like mutiny here, but they have voiced the opinion that maybe it would be better. But they're sticking with it, so fine. Is the danger then that with people like when Alden is out? Van Dijk, let's be obvious. Uh, let's be very clear: is nowhere near his best level at the minute. The goalkeeper's not the greatest it could be. People are included, like uh, Hatabor has not been in very good form. He's been playing recently. Malasia is still relatively new to the scene. They don't have an absolute guaranteed source of goals in attack, or even two clear starters alongside uh, Memphis. Could they go the other way and go out of this group? Senegal think, first is a really hard game if Senegal play well. It is. 
It is. Senegal is is a tough one to start with, but they do get the easiest last game in in Qatar. And the games do get easier for them because I don't see, like, you know how you said earlier you don't see Ecuador losing to Qatar? I, I would have, a, have great trouble seeing the Netherlands lose to Ecuador. Agree. I, I see that don't see. Draw. Yeah, at worst, at worst, I'd see that one being a draw. The Senegalese one is the one. But if they take a point from Senegal, I think they're safe. Because they will beat Qatar, and they will, I think, at worst, get a draw against Ecuador. Much depends on Virgil, because if Virgil plays at his best, they're not losing any of the three games, and they will win at least one. So, like for me, Virgil's definitely not at his best, but I do think he's playing within himself because he's avoiding trying to avoid getting hurt. He doesn't want to miss this World Cup. This is his one and only chance to lead the Netherlands into a World Cup as captain. He won't be, I don't think. Well, to be fair, there's no reason he couldn't play at the next World Cup. He'd only be 35. And in no likelihood, Thiago Silva's playing at this World Cup and he's never been as good as Virgil in his life. And he's 43. So he could play, but... I think he's probably looking at this thing, and I miss the Euros. I'm not missing this. The one risk with the it's Dutch definitely is definitely the only one in his prime, isn't it? Yes, ex- that's a, that's a, the better way of saying it. This is the one World Cup where he can go in his prime and show that he is the best defender of this generation by a considerable margin. Um, I also think it's a big proving ground for the likes of Delict and people like that, and, and Frankie, who have really stagnated in the last couple of years, and their reputations have taken a fair battering. So I think they need to go and prove themselves this World Cup as well. And Memphis the same. I think a lot of people have written him off on different occasions. The risk with the Dutch is what the risk always is with the Dutch. That they go there, they lose the first game, and they implode. And we've seen it since the era of Cruyff, right the way through to the Euro 96, when they imploded internally. The Dutch, there's there's an arrogance within the squad that can always creep out at different times. I think that's the only risk to them. But I think if I was picking this group, I would say the likelihood is the Netherlands first, Senegal second, Ecuador third, Qatar fourth. But what I'm going to pick is the Netherlands first, Ecuador second, Senegal third and Qatar fourth. What about yourself? I will stick with Alou Cisse doing the job. I think one of his best traits that he's done there so far has definitely been in the team building aspect uh, and being able to form quite a group which is like totally focused on like the big positives of themselves and like us against the world if it needs to be. Um, So I'm going to stick with him to go on and get a second place in the group. I just want to ask you what your back three would be, since we know they're going to play a back three. If everybody's fit, let's say, which three are you starting at the back for the Netherlands? Which three? Um, honestly, I would say Timber, Van Dijk and Aki, because I think you've got to have a left footer there, and Aki's the... Oh, well, Blind. That... I really like Blind. I love his passing range. I like how progressive he is. I think he's a very calm head. Now, he's not the quickest, but Virgil is very quick and Timber's rapid. So in a three, I'd probably go 
Timber, Virgil and Blind. And I know that means no Matthias Delict, but I don't think a back three fits Delict unless he plays in the middle role and he's not getting in ahead of Virgil. And I want Virgil in the middle. Yeah, I think that's the often the, the struggle with the balance that they have. There's loads of really good players, but I would have Timber ahead of um, David I at the moment, for sure. And I would have Van Dijk central ahead of Van Dijk on the left. And like yeah. you say, the Ligt is just a, a central player now. He seems to have lost a little bit of mobility as he's gone into his early 20s. Yeah, which is a bit of a concern, uh, especially for Bayern Munich, who just spent a lot of money on him. Um, right. Let's move on then to Group B. Before we start this, Carl, we have done 45 minutes almost on Group A. Okay. So can I, can I suggest we just do Group A and Group B today? We'll do C and D later this week. We'll do E and F next week and G and H next week as well. That's good. Um, and that way we managed to get four podcasts out of what we thought was a two-podcast project. Anyway, Group B. England, Iran, the United States, and Wales. So it's a fairly straightforward group for England. And we'll start with them. Uh, They won Group I in the UEFA stage or the UEFA section of the World Cup qualifiers. Ten games, eight wins, two draws. Now, not exactly playing the strongest level of competition. Poland finished second in that group. Albania, Hungary, Andorra, and San Marino rounding out the group, and that was a Hungarian team that largely did miss Dominic Zabozlai. Uh England beat San Marino 5-0. They beat Albania 2-0. They beat Poland 2-1, Hungary 4-0, Andorra 4-0, drew 1-1 with Poland, beat Andorra 5-0, Drew 1-1 with Hungary, uh, beat Albania 5-0, and then beat San Marino 10-0 in one of the great acts of punching down that I've ever seen. Um, Carl, this should be, I think, an England squad for the ages, but I think England are weakening themselves with some of the inclusions in this squad and I I have serious doubts over Garrett Southgate when it comes down to it from a tactical point of view. There's a lot of good players, but I think there's question marks over the goalkeeping situation. Pickford's not very good, but he's the number one. Ramsdale has had an okay start to the season. Nick Pope has been very good, uh, and Dean Henderson is, is there in the mix. I don't know who the three will be. It'll be Pickford plus two. But I'm not confident in that group. Wouldn't be at all confident in what Southgate will pick at the back because I think he'll go almost certainly with Walker, uh, Maguire, who's not playing for Manchester United, Stones, who I think has had an iffy start of the season and isn't first choice for his club. Um, Ben Chilwell may well be the left back. He's not first choice at his club. In midfield, Jordan Henderson's not fit for this, but he's there anyway. Uh, Not really sure why. And the worry over Calvin Phillips' injury gives me a bit of concern for the World Cup. And then up front, they're so reliant on Kane and Sterling. 
that I, I need to see somebody else pop up and show that they can deliver goals when required. But Bowen has not started the season well. Grealish has been largely dreadful for City since going there. Saka has had a questionable start, even though he's got some goals and assists. I like Ivan Tony's inclusion. Overall, I, I think they should comfortably get through to this through this group. But I really feel like when I look at the the pool of talent available to England, I think it's second only to France. And yet I look at the squad and I just think that's not nearly what the England squad should be. There's too many players there who seem to be there because, you know, they're strong characters in the dressing room. And I just don't think you need to have five or six of them in your squad. Well, firstly, we've got to point out, obviously, that you know the only nation to stop England at the Euros was Italy. And since Italy are not at the World Cup, that means England are going to win, right? That's how it works. We can agree on that to start with, yeah? Well, uh, what if, if we decide that Argentina and Brazil are forsaking the World Cup, <laughs> then perhaps. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, right, I, I think overall, over the last, let's say, four years, let's say, in fact, back to the last World Cup, England's uh, results and progression in tournaments has been better than the performances they've offered. I think that's a, a fair overall analogy of it. Um, we've, we've generally speaking, gone further than the footballing quality, which has been on show on average, suggests that might have been the case for England, I think. I do think that the level of football is also a little bit below the level of the actual players overall, which is either down to tactical instruction or you know, a lack of ability to gel or the fact that it's been very, very much a focus on win and go through to the next round and it doesn't overly matter if you're passing and your creativity and your attacking cohesion is not actually up to scratch as much as you would like it to be on a week-to-week basis at club level. And if that is the case, kind of fine because it's proven to work in terms of they've gone further than they had done at previous tournaments. I do think that it limits what you can achieve. I do think it limits what England will do at this World Cup. Um, still struggle to get on board with quite a lot of inclusions in the squad but that's what this manager is in the same way as we've you know, spoken about Louis van Gaal is very very stuck on his 3-5-2, 3-4-3 and he's going to play wing backs Southgate is very very stuck on he's got this group of dressing room characters and he's going to have it and you kind of just got to roll with it you know, and, and we just make the most out of what is or isn't there for example I think that Kieran Trippi is going to start at left back at the World Cup. If he's fit, I think he starts and that's where his position will be. Ignore the fact that he's not a left-back. Ignore the fact that he won't have played left-back once this season. Ignore the fact that he's been you know, in and out injured for whatever. I think if he's fit, he goes, he starts left-back. That's what I think will happen. So, Luke Shaw... There's a lot of yuck involved in that. Yeah, there is. But the, I, I, I can say that about probably every single nation that goes to the World Cup. You know, certain managers have a certain way of team yeah. building and I don't True. agree with all of it from all of them. It's just how it is. Uh, Fikayo Tomorrow would be a 100% inclusion for me. I don't think he will go to the World Cup for England. That's just another one of the ones that I think is like for the next cycle, for the next one. For, mm. you, know, you can call up 26, I think, for the World Cup, isn't it? So we're going to be a couple of players still who are in even this group now. It's like an extended squad again. And I think he'll be one of them who gets the cup. I do think Tyro Mings is now probably going to be left out He's one of the ones already being left out this time and is terrible and is not in good form and is not always in the team. So 
That's one who shouldn't be in there already, in my opinion, out. I think if Calvin Phillips misses out, it might be that England are almost forced to start Jude Bellingham in midfield. I think it would be Bellingham and Rice. And I think that that would be a big positive. Um, then there are people in the squad nearly all the time during the qualifiers and friendlies and Nations League and all the rest of it who I don't think will actually get in the World Cup squad. Like James Ward-Prowse, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't go to the World Cup, even though he's in nearly every single squad. I just think he's such the type of player who is really good to have around in terms of quality and position that he fills. And there's not loads of competition at centre mid. But if everybody else is fit and you've got a cut of name, I think he goes. Yeah, though I would say if Phillips is injured, I think Ward-Prowse will go as kind of the... Yeah, the Phillips replacement. But, I mean, from a footballing point of view, James Ward-Prowse shouldn't be in the squad. Outside of set pieces and crossing the ball, he's a very, very average footballer. Um, You know, you just you look at the squad and, you know, Stones isn't first choice at City. Maguire can't get a game at United. Luke Shaw isn't first choice at United. Ben Chilwell, not first choice at Chelsea. Connor Cody, simply not very good. Um, Henderson's been garbage for a year and a half. Ward Prowse is bang average. Jack Grealish hasn't been good for City. Jared Bowen is in poor form. But Southgate is comfortable with these players. Um, Bowen obviously only has the, the four caps, but he's he's been a regular fixture in the squad now for about a year. It just doesn't seem like there's any merit or meritocracy in this squad. It doesn't seem like he picks based on form. It doesn't seem like he picks based on ability. It seems like he picks based on who he likes as people. And I I agree with you. I think Mings has probably worked his way out of the squad, but I don't think Tamore or Gwehi go either. If we look at that group of defenders currently listed, I think Tamore and Gwehi miss out. And I think Trent might miss out as well because I could see him bringing Walker, Reese James, Trippier, Shaw and Chilwell as five fullbacks with Trippier kind of the one who can play both sides even though he can't really play on the left. But I think you might be right. I think he might start on the left. If he plays the back three, I think he'll start. I don't think he'll play there if they play a four, though. I can't see England playing a back three in too many of the group stage games, to be honest. Might be a thing for later on, but... Against good teams, I think they will. So I could see it against Wales. Maybe. Um, I I do think Trent will go if he's fit. I don't think Luke Shaw will if he just doesn't play anymore for United, because he's hardly getting any game time at the minute. It's fine. He's going to start. Yeah, Maguire is a bit of a special case, though, isn't he? Because he's, well, he's, captain. A, he's a very special case in a lot of ways. <laughs> uh, I, he's the captain you know, of United and he can't get in the United yes, team. Yes, and I think that there is an element of English football which is trying to resuscitate that. And I wouldn't be surprised if that is one of the reasons. Like Tyra Mings probably had more minutes than Harry Maguire, even though both of them basically started the season out of the team. Mm, well, yeah, because Mings has played, I think, all about one game since. And Maguire played the first two and was then dropped. And has probably played 20 minutes in the league since. And I think he played in one of the Europa League games and was awful. 
Only thing um, I would say about these Nations League games coming up, obviously they're, a bit, they're against very, very good sides, Italy and Germany, so I wouldn't be surprised to see England play a back three at least once there. And they have called up two centre-backs who specifically play better at the centre of a back three. Um, obviously, Conor Cody, you mentioned, and Eric Dyer is the other one, who in a back three yeah. for Spurs, as I've said before, he is functioning very well for them in terms of doing most of He's the things that you need. He's been good since January. Yeah. He, he, has, he has moments where he you know, misjudges or whatever, but in terms of just being a you know, quite reliable clearing the ball, holding fort, and even passing out re- relatively sensibly, pretty good, I think. So if they do want to play the back three for these games, for example, to give them a, a bit of a proven ground for who might be in that role, I do think that a good performance from Dyer in one of these might might mean Cody doesn't go overall. That's a fair point. That is a fair point, and he's obviously got a lot more international experience than Cody as well. It's and just that he has moments... regularly. Yeah, it's just he has moments where he remembers that he's Eric Dyer and he does stupid things. Um, but I could definitely see England playing a back three of Stones, Dyer and Maguire at times. Um, Walker on the right side as well. Or, yeah, or Walker, but I, I, he's going to be in the team one way or another. He will be. He, he tends to play Walker thing. right of three rather than wing back when it's wing backs. Yeah, and, right and, he, and he's played Stones in the middle of it as yeah. well, so he's got his options. Um, I I don't like the way he's going to use this defence at all. I think he's going to make a mess. Uh, the midfield, like you, I'd like to see Rice and Bellingham. Though I'd rather see, you know, I'd rather see Rice, Bellingham, and Phillips as a three because I think Phillips would give you more balance in there. Play but Phillips Rice, Bellingham, and Rice, Bellingham, and Mount could be fun. I don't think Mason Mount has had a very good start to the season at all. No, he hasn't. No, he and hasn't. Part but, of that, but he is, is he is a favourite. Yeah, and part of that in his defence is the fact that he's been used in quite odd roles so far. I don't like Mason Mount very much playing as one of the narrow wide forwards. I like him as an eight. No. I like him as a you know a ten or one who's playing behind the split strikers basically. Um, so it's a bit difficult for him in a Chelsea side which has been playing odd four three threes for most of the time. So we'll see how and where he plays now under Graham Potter and what looks like it'll be a very flexible system. Again, though, for England. Tends to be a double pivot unless they're playing the four three three. Like the, mm. when they play the when they play the back three, it's a double pivot in midfield, and even some of the times it's been four two three one and double pivot again. I don't think he gets in the side on either one of those unless he's as the ten in the four two three one. Agreed. Yeah, oh, oh, he because you can't play him and you, even in the four three three you can't play him and Bellingham as your eights because it's just it, you're not going to have any balance to the team. Neither of them are good enough defensively to do that. And it's going to leave a lot of work for Declan Rice. So I think Phillips, if he's, I think they have to get him fit, and he has to play. Uh, and I'd like to see him, him Rice, and then whoever of Mount or Bellingham deserves the other one. Um, you, you can convince me in either. In attack, Sterling and Kane will start. So let's say, let's just say Southgate plays four three three. Who is the other starting forward player for you? Is it Foden. Saka? No, it's Foden. it's Foden for you. It's easily Foden, yeah. I love Saka, yeah. but he's not had a good start to this season at all. No. He is comfortably the fourth out of Arsenal's four forwards in terms of form and impact and build-up, not, not even taking into account end product here. But he has been comfortably fourth. So at this minute, it's definitely Foden. Yeah, I agree with that. I think Foden's been outstanding. Um, I... I uh, 
part of me wishes that Southgate would be a bit more flexible so you could potentially get both Foden and Saka into a team with Kane and Sterling. And maybe you could if you played 4-2-3-1 and used Foden as the 10 and played Saka one wing, Sterling the other. Because I do think Saka, he just has that ability to just change a game. Even when he's not playing particularly well, he can just change a game for you, which I'm not sure anyone else in that England squad can do consistently from wide areas. Sterling and Kane can do it centrally. I, I just think when Grealish is having a bad game, Grealish just is just plays poorly. Um, look, is there any doubt in your mind that England will, will win this group and progress quite comfortably? Uh, I think they progress comfortably. I could see them like a win and two draw sort of thing if they don't. You know, England tend to start quite slowly so far in the competitions mm. and you know, up front. If anybody is coming back from injury and gets put into the team anyway, it looks really, really stodgy and it can be a bit of a grind to get through games. But I don't honestly see England losing any of these matches. No, it, it's very hard to see them losing. So they'll play Iran first, then the United States. And then the Welsh. And the only way I could really see them losing a game is if they win the first th- first two, yeah. have yeah, secured yeah. qualification and rest everybody against the Welsh. And Wales and, win, yeah. Yeah, and Bale scores one from like 35 yards or something mental. Um, right, next up is Iran. And they do have a few players that will be known to, to most people. Um, Godas, the midfielder, plays for Brentford. Uh, Alareza Jan Bakash, who played for Brighton for a couple of years, now at Feyenoord, is probably their most well-known player. But Sardar Ausman of Bayer Leverkusen, I would say, is their best player. If not him, uh, maybe Tarami of Porto. Um, one of those two is probably the best player. But this is a team that it's a, it's fairly strong. They've always done relatively well in terms of, you know, proving tough to beat. They did top their group in the Asian qualifying. That was a group that did include South Korea, so it wasn't a walkover. Uh, United Arab Emirates third, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. Eight wins, one draw, one defeat, scored 15, conceded four. It's an experienced squad. A lot of players kind of 40 caps and above. What do you make of the Iranians? Do you know much about anyone other than the likes of Tarami, Ausman, Yohan Bakesh and Godas? Um, yeah, I mean, quite a few of the players, to be fair. I mean, even a few of them who are now playing uh, more locally, let's say, in, in their own nations, quite a few of them have already been in Europe and back out again afterwards. Um, there's also a couple of them who have not been called up to the current squad who have done exactly the same or still playing in Europe. Uh, Vahid Amir is another one up front who's like quite an experienced player. I don't know if he'll actually end up going or not. Um, Taremi that you mentioned obviously is a Champions League regular. Salman Godos, another one who's uh, still with Brentford actually, isn't he? Pretty he is sure indeed, Bre- yeah. Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure Godos is still there. Um, so there's been quite a few of them um, who are either in Europe or have been. And the thing that I remember from them at uh, last World Cup, let's say, uh, where they gave Spain and Portugal really, really tough time. It was that they were very, very organised and they were really difficult to break down off the ball and totally, totally comfortable being out of possession. 
But then when they were in possession, very, very quick transitions. Very, very, not, I wouldn't say, dynamic interchanges of play and loads of rotation, but they got people forward into dangerous areas really quickly. It was very, very well drilled at how to beat a side who are supposed to be bigger and better than you. And they did beat Morocco there as well. Um, so that, you know, they're, they're not going to be cowed by being in this group, let's put it that way. And I could see quite comfortably, actually, that they will win one of these group stage games. I think it would be headline-making stuff depending on which one of the nations they beat because if you want to look at all the uh, uh, political relations and stuff in, in this group as well, but yeah, I, I could see Iran winning one match if they have their best team out. With respect to all of our American listeners, I really hope it's the the United States that they beat. Can you imagine the temper tantrum that will emanate from Donald Trump on whatever social media platform allows him to post as he calls all the players losers and tells the world that they wouldn't have lost if he was still president I'm and tries sure. to blame jo- I'm not sure tries to blame Joe World Biden? Going on. I'm not sure he'll know the World Cup is going on. Oh, no, but somebody will tell him <laughs> that Iran beat USA. He won't know anything about it, but someone will tell him. Um... This is Iran's sixth time at the World Cup. They've never gotten out of the group. Do you think it's possible that this time they get out of the group? Not quite, no. I don't think so. No. They, were, they were really close last time. I think it was a disallowed goal that they had against Portugal, if I remember rightly, which mm. was absolutely ludicrous and was one of those ones that went to the you know, the, the newfangled VAR screens at the time, if I'm remembering rightly, and it did not look like it should have been at all. But... I don't think that they quite manage it this time. Yeah, they would have gone through. Portugal would have gone out and we would have all got to laugh at Portugal. Um, Let's move on then. Let's talk about the United States men's national team because they couldn't just call it the United States national team. Um, There's a lot of talent in this squad, Carl. There really is a lot of talent in this squad. But they made hard work of getting here. They finished third in the CONCACAF behind Canada and Mexico. Almost fell into the playoff that Costa Rica ended up in. And there's just there's a, a flattering to deceive kind of persona around a lot of these players. So... Serginho Dest, most people will know, currently at AC Milan on loan from Barcelona. Um, I think everybody knows Weston McKenney, Tyler Adams, and Malik Thielman's one to keep an eye on. If you haven't seen him, he's up at Rangers doing quite well. Christian Pulisic, also known as Enaremar, he is um, he is or what's what's the other one? Oh, Magadona. He is probably the best known player, the biggest star in the team. But there's other really good players like Gio Reyna, Ricardo Pepe, uh, Eunice Musa, who I'm a big, big fan of. Timothy Weah, son of George, who's one of those players who always flatters to deceive. Cameron Carter-Vickers of Celtic, Anthony Robinson. These are players that might be in the squad uh, in terms of defenders. Who stands out for you? Who are the players you really like? Because you watch quite a bit of MLS. Which players really... Oh, and I missed, of course, Aronson. The, the two Aronsons, both of whom are very talented. Who stands out for you in the squad? Give me two or three names that you really like from this group. Okay, so first of all, United States are probably the side at the World Cup who annoy me the most because there's the biggest 
discrepancy, I would say, between squad talent and actual output. They are... Think about what I was just saying about Ayusi saying like one of the big things that he's been able to do is like put um, Senegal into like a cohesive unit at times and get them on the same wavelength and get them fighting for the same cause and all the rest of it. It's like the complete opposite at the minute with the US. And like for, for quite a long time now, I've found it difficult to get on board with what Greg Behalt is trying to do. Um, we've spoken actually previously about the number of friendlies that they play, the number of call-ups mm. that they have for all the different types of competitions that they're in and all the rest of it. And I do think that that has contributed towards it being a real muddle. Like, even now, I don't think I could probably pick more than 20 who are definitely, definitely going to be in this 26-man World Cup squad because there's such a lot of chopping and changing still. So a couple of them that I really hope do go because I want to see more of them um, because I like them. Callan Acosta is one of them in midfield who have always been quite a... Admirer, let's say, of not a fan so much, but he's played in uh, MLS for ages and ages, Dallas and Colorado, and he's at LAFC now. Um, so, assuming no fitness issues, this is a midfielder who can play centre mid or wide mid. It'll give you all the running, really good final third entries, ball carrying, ball winning, really decent. Uh, Tyler Adams, because I think he's had a, a really good start to the season, maybe up until the last sort of week or two, where I think Leeds have been a bit all over the place uh, in terms of shape and everything. But I really like Tyler Adams, I think he's such a good all-round player and he's the type of player who everybody needs in their team he will do all the work for you he will cover him for people completely selflessly he will fill different positions uh when you know turnovers happen he sees that space he's a really intelligent player i think and then i would probably pick out of the forward line i'm not going to pick like someone like Gio Reyna because we already know that they're really good and have had injury problems and stuff but one i do mm-hmm. hope goes, I'm not 100% sure he will, he should do, if he's fit, is Jordan Morris, uh, who's been at Sounders for about 300 years now or something like that, and he's still only like 26, 27 somehow. So he plays either up front or off to the side, out wide, like, and he's a really good forward, I think. He he's lacks a little bit of finesse in front of goal and maybe is not as clinical as he could be, and that's why he's been obviously pushed out wide. He had a little short loan spell with... I want to say Swansea a few years ago, which didn't really amount yes. an awful lot, unfortunately. Um, but I just generally think in terms of his his movement, his work rate, his sort of mix of ability in the air and on the ground, he's a really good forward to have. He's probably not going to be a, a guaranteed starter, and if the game's not going according to plan, he'd be one that you pull off anyway. But in amongst people like Pulisic, who can be a match winner, um, Gio Reyna, who is really talented but unreliable at this stage of his career still, Jordan Morris is just a bit more of a just a, a solid one you can rely on. I wouldn't be surprised, for example, it would be one of him or Josh Sargent in the team every single time, let's say, something like that. Someone who's going to do loads of running for you, be a decent outlet, hold the, the ball, dirt couch. work hard. Basically that, exactly that. Yeah. Someone who is probably not as good as, good as Dirk out in front of goal and all the rest of it, but someone who is in terms of the rest of the team, going to work really, really hard for you and help you out of tight spots and could help you win the match as well. Yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see like Aronson play a really big role because he's, he's superb. He is star quality. Just in Pulisic, they still haven't really figured out how to use him, partly because no club has really figured out how, how to use him. I think he was always best uh, at the tip of the diamond for, for the US, but this is a long time ago now. He's, he's still only, what, 24 Pulisic? 24, like, yeah. 24 the other day. Yeah, so it was like 18 and 19 when he was playing at the top of the diamond and he looked like that's where he's going to be now for years to come. And it's 
still not exactly clear how to best use him. So I wouldn't be surprised if people like Ricardo Pepe don't go, to be honest, because it's not quite worked out for him yet. And he's still very young, obviously. And as we've said before, they have about 7,000 other people trying to get in the squad as well. Timothy Ware, I wouldn't take myself. Um, But there should be enough interesting people here in this squad to make it a very, very watchable team. But I don't think that they have anywhere near the cohesion in the team, the real set ways of playing, depending on how the game is going, especially when they're trailing. I, I just don't like how this team is put together at all. No, neither do I. And, you know, we, we've we touched on this before. In the last 12 months, the US men's national team have called up 61 players. 61 players. I'm sorry, I don't care what country you are. There are not 61 players good enough to play for you at any one time. Now, I get that they play a lot of friendlies and they're involved in 43 different tournaments. And that's fair enough. Maybe what the men's national team need to do is create a B team that takes part in friendlies against lesser opposition and some of the, like a development squad maybe will be a better term than a B team. But your your A squad should remain largely the same unless someone has a drastic falling out of favour or someone outside of it really pops and, and deserves to get in based on. So you might have a group of, let's say if you're calling up 26, you might have a group of 35 that is your kind of A group, and then your B group is a has like nine of them and another 20 or whatever, and that's it. There should be very little crossover. Like I say, maybe nine players that could be on the fringes of it in different areas. But this idea that they should have 61 players called up in the last 12 months, most of whom got at least one cap. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight who didn't get a cap and two of them are goalkeepers. But there's a, like, there is a lot of talent here. You know, goalkeeper, I, I don't know much about Matt Turner, but I think Zach Steffen's decent error against Liverpool. Uh, aside, I think Chris Richards is good. I know Anthony Robinson's good. I think Serginho Dest is pretty good. So I've got three quarters of a pretty good defence. If I can play them regularly together and mould them into what I want them to be, who that other centre-back is going to be, I, I don't know. Or, or whether or not there's other better options. You know, in midfield, Tyler Adams is your starting point. Are you playing 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1? If it's 4 2 three, one, just find the best partner for him. Then find a couple of good backups who can come in. So in the likes of Weston McKenney, uh, the likes of Eunice Musa, uh, Musa Kellen Acosta, you mentioned, those would be the guys in that that core group. Uh, maybe Luca Della Torre of Celta Vigo, who's a decent enough player, maybe he could be one that you consider. Um, and in attack, like you say, I mean, you, you've, Pulisic is super talented. So find the best use of him and build out accordingly from there. And if it's in a 4-3-3, and maybe the best use of him is to play him as a false nine, and put a Morris or a Sargent on one side and a Gio Reyna on the other side, and maybe that's your best balance. But this whole chopping and changing nonsense is is what is holding back the United States. I don't think uh, Bearhalter's any good at all. 
I, I just don't think he's a good coach. I, I didn't think he was particularly good at Columbus Crew. Uh, it is notable, in my view, that they improved quite a lot after he left. Um, he didn't pull up any trees with Hammerby. He was a solid player. He's not a good manager, in my view. And I, I think the the men's nationally need to take a long look at what they can do to improve the situation. Even if it was a case where you just turn around to, let's just say Bielsa, and you say, look, we will give you whatever you want and you have complete control, but we would like to work on the basis of an A squad and a development squad. And you will manage the A squad and oversee the development squad, but we want you to appoint who you want to manage that team. Maybe someone that you think could be a good successor to you here. Whoever that may be, and we build from there. You pick your team, you take care of the the important games, World Cup qualifiers and things like that, and the development squad will take care of the friendlies and all the, the, the garbage and the Gold Cup and whatever else. And you oversee that, so you're like a manager slash director of football type of thing. Build it out in your vision. It doesn't have to be him. He's just an example because he's out of work at the minute. But I just don't see them... I don't see them fulfilling the talent that they have while the current the current plan is in place, because for me it it it's just not right. Tell me this: How DeAndre Yedlin has seventy four caps <laughs> when he has zero footballing ability? How does that happen? It just it baffles me. I look at players like he's twenty nine with seventy four caps and not very good, and like. You know, you've looked. I've looked at players over the years with the states who've been like twenty six, like Jose Altador. That fella got a ludicrous amount of caps, despite the fact that he wasn't very good for a substantial amount of time. Like he retired from the international team at thirty with one hundred and fifteen caps, one hundred and fifteen caps by then, and he only played five games in the last two years. Which means by 28, he had 110 caps. It's ridiculous. Like, nobody should be playing that much club, uh, that much international football. They just shouldn't. And I think the, um, in terms of Bahalta, it's, it's quite evident so far that a lot of the, the big matches they've had or the matches against either, you know, historical rivals or which matter the most, they've lost. That's that's the really mm. poor thing that he's not really put into place. It's not always about what system he's trying to put in or which players he's even got on the pitch. It is about how you put that team together and what they are fighting for, what they're working for, what they you know have as this underlying thing which is going to give them the bit of grit that they need. But when you're beating probably like Costa Rica and you lose to Canada in relatively important games at the time that they were... Um, it, it it speaks quite a lot. I think they were they were quite fortunate not to go into the uh, into the playoff at the very least, and I think they'll struggle at the World Cup. I see. So do I. So do I. Can I ask you about one name who I saw a little bit of during the MLS season, and who has been linked with moves to Europe? Uh, Jesus Ferreira 
the young forward player at FC Dallas. Have you seen much of him? Because he had quite a good season in terms of goal scoring, 18 goals in 31 league games. He's had a fairly decent start to life with the national team, seven goals in 13 games, though four of them did come against Granada, which is a bit like getting a free toy in a Happy Meal. <laughs> Have you seen much of him? A uh, little bit. So I, I can't say I've seen loads because Dallas are not one of the sides I watch too much of all the time now. Um, he looks good in terms of his movement, I think. His first touch is very good, and I think both of those things are what gets him quite a lot of his um, goal-scoring opportunities, let's say. Uh, maybe not the most in terms of aggression against defences all the time, maybe not in terms of obviously being a particularly tall striker. He's someone you probably need to play alongside or out wide of someone else. Um, so maybe you could see him if they have, like, like we mentioned before, Jordan Morris or someone like that. You can play Fedeira somewhere alongside him. But again, it depends so much on what system that they play. And really until that's sort of guaranteed, I find it very difficult to pick, like I said before, more than 20, maybe not even 20, who are definitely, definitely going to go. Like You can understand it's like the last uh, international break before the World Cup, so they want to have a look at a few more players as well. But what are we talking here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight players in this squad who have got less than a dozen caps. Nine players. Mm. I mean, it's it's quite a big group who are not <coughs> very integrated, let's say, already into the squad when you consider who else has been left out and how many choices they have. Yeah. I expect very yeah, little from exactly. the US. Yeah, I don't either. I- I'm looking forward to seeing Gio Reyna, if he's fit. I-, I-, I always enjoy watching him. I think he's a wonderful young player. The same thing with Eunice Musa. I think he's just brilliant to watch. Um, but if this, I just know that they're going to let me down. You-, you want to get excited by the US team because there's always these really good individuals, but no, they just they just they want to let you down. That's what they want to do. Um there you in. Bastards. <laughs> um, right. Um last team then is the Welsh. Mm. And the Welsh of course have one real star in Gareth Bale, one pseudo star in Aaron Ramsey, who, to be fair to him, has looked a little bit better for Nice. And then a group of really hard-working players with a, a sprinkling of young talent that I think the Welsh people should get quite excited by. And those players I think they should get excited by. Brennan Johnson is outstanding. And I really like Sorba Thomas at Huddersfield. I I will watch Huddersfield randomly just to watch him dribble the ball because I just think he's so much fun. Um, I'm not keen on their goalkeepers. I'm not overly keen on their defenders, though I do think they've got one or two who are quite good. I'm not overly keen on the midfielders, but <laughs> Bale, Sorba Thomas and Brennan Johnson, I do like... What I know about this team is they're going to be really, really hard to beat. They're going to work incredibly hard for each other. There's an amazing team spirit. And they continue to outperform 
their talent level. In their qualifiers, um, they finished second in Group E behind Belgium, but ahead of the Czech Republic, Estonia, and Belarus. They only lost once. That was away to Belgium. They beat Belarus 8-0. They beat Belarus 3-2. They drew with Estonia. They drew with the Czech Republic away. They beat Estonia away. Uh, They drew with Belgium at home. They beat Belarus at home. And I've missed a game. Oh, they beat the Czech Republic uh, at home. Then they went into the playoffs. And to their credit, they had to wait quite a long time for the playoffs because of the war in Ukraine, which held up the Scotland-Ukraine game. So Wales played Austria in March, beat them 2-1, which was a great result in itself. But then rather than play the following week, which was the plan, they had to wait all the way till June to finally play Ukraine. And no surprise, Gareth Bale with the goal. He scored all three of their goals in these two qualifiers, where I would suggest they beat two teams who probably were quite confident of beating them. Uh, There was no Eurovision nonsense here. There was no vote (laughs) to put Ukraine in the World Cup. Um, I think Wales should finish second in this group, Carl, but not on talent, purely on team spirit and having that one guy who week to week looks like he couldn't be arsed and then puts on the Welsh jersey and all of a sudden becomes one of the five best players on the planet. If you could somehow somehow extract this Wales team's work rate and togetherness and desire and ethic and never give up ability and somehow inject that into the Netherlands squad, they would win this tournament. They would win every tournament. Every tournament. It's outrageous how the squad is able to just go toe-to-toe with so many teams who are miles better than them, let's be honest. Mm. I mean, in the last, um, in the summer international break there, which white games are happening in June, I am yet to receive a a viable explanation for, but whatever. Uh, They lost twice to the Netherlands, so, you know, decent comparison there. But both times were injury time goals. So both times... Wales equalised in injury time and then conceded afterwards in injury time, which was all kinds of ridiculous. But I think it sort of speaks volumes. One, that they're able to be even in that position to get themselves back into a game, which, let's be honest, doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. I don't know you can qualify through the Nations League or whatever, but nobody cares. But even in those games, Wales have themselves this ability to be representing Wales, basically. That's what it comes down to. They have this spirit and this squad and this identity of the national team and all the rest of it, and it really, really works for them. And Mm. it's going to be really important for them to do that again and to have that again. I think it will probably work very much in their favour that their first game is against the US because they will go into that game, you know, first one in, what, two generations to be at the World Cup, first uh, time that any of these current fans probably have been able to watch a game and certainly that obviously this group of players has been able to represent them in the finals at the, at the World Cup. Whereas the United States that we've just spoken about, they're, they're there again, they're there most of the time. They're not yes. set up in a way, they're not really cohesive, they're not really got enough unity in the, in the squad. We don't even know who's going to be in the squad, whereas you could probably pick, let's say probably 24, maybe 25 of this Welsh 
squad who, if they're fit, will be there for sure. And then there's maybe one or two of the sort of the backups or the younger ones who might force their way in or out. I mean, there's like a 17-year-old Fulham midfielder, Luke Harris. I don't even know who he is, so I assume he's in there for a bit of you know experience in game time and see what he's like, but he's not really going to go to the World Cup. Um, mm. But uh, I'm with you. I think if they, if they win that first game, they go through. Um, I, I could definitely see them winning the first one, drawing with the round and going through on four points if, if they need to, or yeah. five points by drawing against England as well. I, I do think that Wales have a great chance of going through, but that is really reliant on about five players being fit. Yeah. This is their first World Cup since 58. They got to the quarterfinals that year, and it wouldn't surprise me if they could repeat that, but it is heavily reliant on a certain core group that they just can't really deal without. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, when you say, obviously, that they got to the quarterfinals of the... There was only eight teams there now, as far as I can remember. Yeah, I think there's four groups or something like that, 16 teams, and they they went through the group and then went out, didn't they, to to Brazil. So not a a huge achievement in terms of winning matches and stuff. So whatever they do this time, basically, as long as they don't lose all three games, I think this will be their best ever performance, basically. So... I expect that from them. I think that that's probably the minimum that they expect as well themselves after so much effort to get here. And I mean, like the the Asian qualifiers are an absolute mammoth to get through because there's like three different stages of qualifications just to get here. But Wales with like the the roundabout way that they've had to go through and the qualifiers and the delayed and everything else, it just feels like an eternity for them to have got here. So Mm -hmm. I don't expect that anybody wastes anything that they've got here I think the best thing that they've got with Rob Page the manager is that he has left them in a system which gets the best out of the players who are not even as good as some of the great group that they have so I mean like one or two of the defenders that they have are benefited from playing in the three on a regular basis like yes. I know you you like Joe Roden quite a bit more than I do for example I think he looks better in a three than anywhere he else does. you could probably play him I think someone like Ampadu is the same. Ampadu yeah, looks exactly. better in a three. Yeah, um, um, I even think Chris Methan probably looks a bit better in a three. Ben Davies looks a bit better in a three. Davies is uh, good in a three. I think he's like actually yeah. in the in the good section. Like um, Nico left, Williams like, is much better as a wing back than a full back. Nico Williams, I think they get so much out of playing as a as an attack minded wing back. Basically, he's, he has yeah. obviously defensive responsibility and he's very aggressive and hard running and all the rest of it. We know pretty much what Nico Williams is like on every level, but he has been allowed a lot of trust and a lot of license with the Welsh national team. And he comes up for them. He like in a big way, basically he will make things happen for them just by refusing to give up a lost ball, which is almost out for a throw in and winning corners, all sorts of things. He's really, really good for them. And I would put people like, um, probably even Kiefer Moore in that same sort of category. Uh, Brennan Johnson, I'm, I'm hopeful that he's a starter for them because I think he's someone who can make such a difference in, in quality yeah. level. Like Dan James even. I think Dan James is such a limited player. I don't like him in the slightest, but for Wales, but, he's really important for them. Yes. It's outrageous. And, and because international football, well, all football is, is slower generally than the Premier League. The Premier League is played at a very frenetic pace. Dan James's pace at international football 
is quite rare. And he as even just if he's an outlet off the bench, last ten minutes, you're chasing a game, you bring on a Dan James with that pace, or you're trying to hold on to a lead and you bring him on up front as an outlet just so you're going to hoof the ball down the pitch and have him run after it. He's not something people are all that used to playing against if they're not playing in England. Like, he for more, the, the same but different. Like, that type of big, physical, brutish striker who just goes on and just wants to throw himself into centre-backs doesn't really care if, if he gets the ball... But he's going to make centre-backs remember the day that they faced Wales. And if you have a couple of those type of specialists that you can chuck on in games and are going to just be different to what teams are used to playing against, that can be... like Remember when Jan Collar was unplayable at international level? Yeah, there was a period because, where um, a saga for Germany was just like... <laughs> Yes, unbelievable outlet that they had just for like six months or something just because he was so big and awkward and they couldn't deal with him at all. Exactly. So, look, the bottom line with Wales is that they will live and die with Gareth Bale. They will go as far as Gareth Bale can carry them. But if one or two others, like a Brennan Johnson, can pop at this World Cup, then that takes the load off of Bale and means that he doesn't have to be Superman in every game the way he did have to be at, say, the Euros and that. I think, like you, that the Welsh will go through. I think they will win their first ever World Cup game, because like, obviously, 58, like you said, uh, three draws in the group. Okay. They drew with Hungary 1-1, they drew with Mexico 1-1, and they drew with Sweden 0-0. And then they lost 1-0 to Brazil in the quarterfinal. I think they'll win their first ever World Cup game. I think they'll go through. And I think we should all get on board with wanting them to get through. Because America do not deserve any sort of success because the whole thing is a mess. And I just think, I think Iran probably lack the talent to get out of the group. So I'm going to say England 1, Wales 2, the US 3 and Iran 4. I'm going to go for Iran 3 and US bottom. Oh, get in, get in. Get a choke for me. I don't Proper like slander. What, I don't like what they're doing at all. So, And and the manager to be sacked on the way home. He said, do you know what they should do? If you're anyone from the US men's national team is listening, just hire the two of us. We will fix <laughs> your shambolic national team within... What do we say? Eight years? So an eight-year contract is what we'd need. Um, and obviously full oversight and, and you know freedom to do what we want. But eight years. Eight years, we'll fix it for you. And if we don't, you can just sack us after eight years. I think that's fair. I don't think we could offer fairer than that. I, I don't know what anybody else would want other than that. That's, that's obviously got to be the way. Only thing is we're going to have to sort out who's, uh, who's Bielsa here and who's overseeing the development. Oh, no, we'll, we'll appoint the manager okay, as well. Fine, we'll fine. Not manage the team. Oh, God, no. No, 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 no. But we'll sort out, like, the, the structure. We What we'll do is we'll, we'll build centralised academies to bring all the best young players together and bring them up. Like, we'll have... We could build six versions of St. George's Park 
across America to bring in all the best young players and make sure they're part of the setup from an early stage and make it more focused that, you know, each regional St. George's Park type of thing has its own team that competes rather than having them all amalgamate together. And then you just, you know, siphon off the weaker ones and bring the stronger and more talented ones to the top. Do you know, this 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 is a separate podcast, but do you know who's already doing this? Who? USL teams. Yeah, true. It's USL who has got this really, really big um, focus on youth development programs at the minute rather than MLS because they have their own uh, contracts rather than a central league contract. And that is, for quite a few of them, um, a very, very good way to obviously have growth and, and transfers and sales and stuff of the players who are leaving. So maybe maybe over the next few years we'll see a few more USL players or USL-formed players breaking through into the uh, into the national team setups because they've had that uh, academy grounding in the first place. And in honour of America, the guards, have, the, the police have arrived outside Carl's place. Um, so we will leave it there for today. Uh, we will be back later this week and we will take on groups C and D. Uh, we were going to do them all today, do all four today, but this would then end up being about a three-hour podcast, which probably wouldn't go down all that well just so everybody's aware group c is argentina saudi arabia mexico and poland and group d then is france australia denmark and tunisia so those should be fun we'll do e and f another day and g and h another day as well so anything you want to plug before we go no just uh suppose people best clear their schedules because we're going to give them a lot of content this week yes we are indeed we are indeed and uh, make sure you're following carl on twitter at carl Matchett. Follow Guy Drinkle at Guy Drinkle. Follow me at EPL Index. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement. And we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.